Hello, this is Cecilia Valle. I'm professor of the University of Oslo in Norway. It is an honor and a privilege to be here to record this lecture on women refugees and gender persecution. It is estimated that around the world, women make up 50% of the 80 million people who are displaced. Women are vulnerable to discrimination and violence before, during, and after their displacement. Yet they also have opportunities for participation in peace building and political and socioeconomic empowerment. Nevertheless, the definition of a refugee, which is articulated in the 1951 Convention on the Status of Refugees, only recognizes persecution for reasons of race, religion, nationality, or membership in a particular social group or political opinion. It does not include gender as an enumerated ground. And there remain many national jurisdictions that do not include women or gender or LBGT status as protected grounds. In 2014, the UN Committee on the Convention on the Elimination of Discrimination Against Women issued General Recommendation Number 32 on the gender-related dimensions of refugee status, asylum, nationality, and statelessness of women. And it called in paragraph 38 for the interpretation of the refugee definition in line with the obligations of non-discrimination and equality, the integration of a gender-sensitive approach to interpretation of the protection grounds, and the addition of sex and or gender to the protection grounds. In this lecture, we'll discuss the challenges and the advances in addressing the protection needs of women refugees, as well as those claiming gender-based or gender-related persecution. So first, let's take a look at the conceptual definitions. Let's start with gender. The UNHCR gender guidelines define the concept of gender as the relationship between women and men based on socially and culturally constructed and defined identities, the status, the roles and responsibilities that are assigned to one sex or another, whereas sex is a biological determination. The relationship between men and women, as well as gender-fluid non-binary persons in many societies is characterized by discrimination, which is grounded in gender stereotypes in private and public arenas. Discrimination is the most blatant form um, when it's expressed through violence. It's estimated that more women have died from violence against women than in all the wars combined. Although many countries have national legislation penalizing domestic violence and other traditional harms, there are many countries in which neither the judiciary nor the police will enforce the law in practice. Hence, the provision of asylum as surrogate protection is perpetually urgent for women. So let's move on to gender-based violence. Now, before flight, the UN Declaration on the Elimination of Violence Against Women provides a holistic definition 
which refers to gender-based violence as including physical, sexual, and psychological violence, first occurring in the family, including battering, sexual abuse of female children in the household, dowry-related violence, marital rape, female genital mutilation, and other traditional practices which are harmful to women, including non-spousal violence and violence related to exploitation. Second, occurring within the general community, including rape, sexual abuse, sexual harassment, and intimidation at work, in educational institutions, and elsewhere, as well as trafficking of women and forced prostitution. And third, perpetrated or condoned by the state, wherever it occurs. The Declaration sets forth a duty of prevention. This rejects cultural relativist resistance, and I quote, states should not invoke any custom, tradition, or religious consideration to avoid their obligations to eliminate violence. It also calls upon states to exercise due diligence to prevent, investigate, and in accordance with national legislation, punish acts of violence against women, whether those acts are perpetrated by the state or private persons. It's noteworthy that the preamble of the Declaration underscores that refugee and migrant women are especially vulnerable to violence. Furthermore, the Istanbul Convention on Violence Against Women, which is applicable in Europe, provides a comprehensive protection framework that addresses structural violence and discrimination against refugee women. For example, Article 59 calls on states to guarantee residency status and suspension of expulsion of victims of violence and forced marriage. Article 60 calls for recognition of gender-based violence against women as a form of persecution. It calls also for the application of a gender-sensitive interpretation of the protection grounds, as well as the adoption of gender-sensitive reception and asylum refugee status determination procedures. Further, Article 61 set forth a non-refoulement standard applicable to victims of violence against women. Let's look at the contextual scenarios of forced migration of women. Let's start with urban life. Refugee women who seek refuge in urban cities face a lack of access to legal employment due to a lack of documents, which put them at risk of exploitation in the irregular economic market. They also face a risk of housing evictions and deportation, as well as a lack of protection by the state should they be subject to sexual abuse, domestic violence, or trafficking. The other scenario is when they're placed in camps. The warehousing of refugees in camps create a very precarious context for women who are at risk of discrimination and abuse by soldiers, both state and non-state, as well as the staff of the international organizations and the NGOs and even other refugees. They may be sexually exploited, um, in exchange for food, medicine, housing, materials, uh, water, or documentation or access to facilities. And there's a really opaque system of accountability for these violations. Furthermore, they may be subject to risky abortions or lack prenatal 
or maternal care in the event of pregnancies. Women often experience pay inequality and may be limited in their ability to assume leadership roles within the camps. It's the construction of uh, structural violence in the administration and the maintenance of the camps that requires reform. The Maputo Protocol on Women's Rights applicable in Africa calls for women to be included in the management of refugee and IDP camps to ensure their protection. And this is actually implemented by UNHCR in various camps. Let's move on to refugee status determination. Let's start with state protection. When women refugees are processed for refugee status determination, there is an evaluation of whether the country of origin has a context in which women's rights and well-being are not protected. Caseworkers will need to review a country's laws, their customs, their religious practices, and their social norms. Persecutors often use the legal system, the financial institutions, and the state institutions as a means to limit a woman's right to freedom and equality. It's necessary to evaluate whether the punishment which women are subjected to is proportionate or justifiable. Furthermore, it's important to address whether there's a discrepancy between the formal legislation against gender-based violence and the actual practice in society, which may actually be condoned or tolerated by the state. Okay, let's look at the due diligence application specifically. The UN Convention on the Elimination of Discrimination Against Women and the UN Declaration on the Elimination of Violence Against Women establish a due diligence obligation framework that set forth that where a state facilitates conditions, accommodates, tolerates, justifies, or excuses private denials of women's rights, the state will actually bear responsibility for its lack of diligence to prevent, control, correct, or discipline private acts through state organs. Although protection approaches originally focused on response to acts of violence, there has been a shift towards prevention of violence by dismantling patriarchal gender structures that promote violence. Corruption, delays, underfunding, non-responsiveness, or gender bias of police, judiciary, and other institutions in charge of preventing and monitoring and responding harmful traditional practices are revealed by low statistics of investigation and prosecution of perpetrators. Now, these harmful traditional practices are largely considered to be private family matters, usually not meriting police response. And what happens is that women are not likely to seek redress from the court or the state institution because they often lack financial resources to pay the fees or uh, manage the travel costs or be able to cross a geographic distance. They may lack witnesses. There may be a lack of victim protection services and they may have no legal aid. And they may also feel uh, reprisal, and this can include uh, the fact that they may be subject to physical assault, uh, murder, eviction from their home, they may lose the custody of their children, they may be subject to economic violence and prosecution. They may be subject to stigmatization or ostracism from their communities. 
So prosecution and incarceration of the family provider um, may not be pursued um, precisely because of the state of dependence on his income for maintenance of the family. And further, women and LBGT persons may believe that there's no point in filing a complaint with the state because of the bias of police and the judiciary against them, especially if they've been attacked because of their actual or perceived sexual orientation or gender identity. So decision makers should be really sensitive to the particular challenges faced by women when seeking access to justice in the country of origin. The errors that we see in case processing include formalistic reliance on the existence of anti-domestic violence, anti-female genital mutilation, or similar legislation, or for formalistic reliance on the existence of women's shelters without assessing whether there's real access to protection. And we really look at whether police and judges um, have been trained in gender violence whether the legal aid systems and the shelters are accessible to women, and uh, whether there's um, funding for community educational programs to support the protection of women and eliminate the use of stereotypes and denigration traditions. Uh, to put it very clearly, where the states fail to provide gender training, there's a risk that return of women to these jurisdictions will expose them to harm in the context of impunity. Now, one of the primary forms of oppression of women is economic violence. Ironically, this issue is insufficiently addressed in uh, international instruments um, on violence against women. However, the Istanbul Convention on Violence Against Women in Article 3 explicitly recognizes, and I quote, economic harm or suffering to women, including threats of such acts, coercion or arbitrary deprivation of liberty, whether occurring in public or private life, and economic violence as aspects of violence against women. So women may be prevented from earning a living or gaining employment and are thereby completely unable to emancipate themselves from an oppressive home life. At the national level, some countries have legislation that prohibit economic violence against women who are victims of domestic violence. For example, wiping out the victim's economic means of subsistence or property. What they do is then they require the transfer of title of property to the woman in the event of domestic violence. Women need protection in divorce cases, which include violence, and this includes the right to file a complaint and provide evidence the right to have standing in court, the right to be awarded custody of the children, and the right to receive protection from the courts, including orders instructing the aggressor to leave the home and uh, provide accountability for violence. So should such protection framework be absent, decision makers should be very cautious about returning women to situations of pervasive harm. So let's look at assessment of the risk. Decision makers should consider evidence including a failure of state protection if the state or its agents in the claimant's country of origin are unwilling or unable to provide adequate protection from gender-related persecution. When considering whether it's objectively unreasonable for the claimant not to have sought protection of the state, the decision maker has to consider 
the social, cultural, religious, and economic context in which the claimant finds herself. A gender-related claim cannot be rejected simply because the claimant comes from a country where women face generalized oppression and violence, and the claimant's fear of persecution is not identifiable to her on the basis of an individualized set of facts. This particularized evidence rule was rejected by a Canadian Federal Court of Appeal in the Saliban case. Let's look at evidentiary problems in gender cases. One of the most significant challenges regarding presentation of evidence to satisfy the objective prong of the well-founded fear of persecution test is the fact that we have often a lack of statistical data on the incidence of violence against women and LBGT persons, including sexual violence. Now, there's often underreporting of violence against women and a lack of prosecution of offenders, even within developed countries. So it's important for caseworkers to look at the testimonies of other women similarly situated in written or oral testimony, as well as NGO reports or the conclusions of the CEDAW committee to state reports. The lack of such information is not enough to disqualify a woman or LGBT person if she's found to be subjectively credible. Nor should a woman's lack of documentation be held against her, since many women lack documentation corroborating their protection claims. Now let's focus on the credibility assessment. Many women do not perceive the crimes committed against them as violations of their human rights or sometimes they prefer discussing harm experienced by other people. Hence, decision makers may not be made aware of the harm experienced by the applicant. In particular, in cases of sexual violence, domestic violence, forced sterilization, honor crimes, or female genital mutilation, there's often complete silence. And this is because the woman is experiencing feelings of guilt, shame, or fear of being stigmatized or ostracized by her community. They may suffer rape trauma syndrome or battered women syndrome. And this means that the woman will be reluctant to discuss the traumatic events with immigration caseworkers. And this uh, has a consequence of a negative credibility assessment. Women need to be interviewed by female caseworkers who are trained to conduct fair and safe questioning for victims of gender persecution, guaranteeing complete confidentiality from disclosure to other family members in particular. They should be interviewed separately from the family members, including their children, and they absolutely should be given counseling after interviewing um, if needed, because they may uh, suffer trauma from discussing the events they experience. And let's look at gender-related persecution. Women who are at risk of gender-based violence may claim a fear of persecution. The refugee determination assessment will determine whether the violence amounts to serious harm and whether the state is likely to fail to protect the woman. It's the state's failure to act with regard to its due diligence obligation to protect the woman that entails state responsibility. Both or either the persecution by the non-state actor, such as domestic violence in which the husband or father may be conducting the abuse, 
And the lack of response by the state authorities, such as the police or the judiciary, may be based on interstitial grounds for discrimination, including race, ethnicity, religion, or other grounds in addition to gender. So let's examine um, some harmful traditional practices. Forced marriage. Women may be imprisoned, isolated, abducted, beaten, subjected to domestic violence, raped, or verbally or psychologically abused, or subjected to a severe economic disadvantage. It's the context of coercion or duress that changes the characterization of the marriage from voluntary to forcible. Girls may be sold by their fathers or other family members to settle debts or disputes. This is called girl compensation. Um, or for financial gain or exchange of valuable goods because families um, often have pressing economic needs. Or it may be a remedy in response to rape or sexual abuse, thereby sparing the victim of stigmatization. So the problem here is that families sincerely believe that they are guaranteeing the security of the daughter and or the family through the practice. And girls under the age of consent, identified as 18 by the Convention on the Rights of the Child, are subject to early marriage. And this results in vesicovaginal fistulas, pregnancy-related complications due to the immaturity of the reproductive organs, as well as illiteracy in girls as they are forced to abandon education. Some forced marriages also require female genital mutilation, cutting, or virginity testing, resulting in the beating or murder if negative. And this leads to multiple violations. Forced marriage also includes wife inheritance, in which a widow is forced to marry an in-law when her husband passes away, or uh, widow burning. Women who identify themselves as lesbian may be subject to forced marriage to cure them and women who espouse feminist views or liberal perspectives regarding religious or cultural practices may also be subjected to forced marriage due to their challenging the social mores and religious codes. Hence, they would also fall under the protection category of religion. Other societies practice temporary marriages in which women are subject to sexual relations and then discarded. Women who reject marriage proposals may be subject to reprisals, such as the spraying of acid on their faces. Should they flee, family members often track them down, they beat them, and subject them to confinement. Within the context of war, forced marriage of women abducted by soldiers results in rapes and beatings, branding, forced domestic labor, and forced child bearing. The special court of Sierra Leone found forced marriage to constitute a crime against humanity. Let's look at honor killing. Some women are forced into exile or subject to honor killing as a result of dishonoring the family. Assumption that the risk assessment only pertains to the immediate period after the event of dishonor is completely incorrect because we've seen that murders occur months and years afterwards, um, including across borders. The family members are often the ones to perform the killing. And police and judiciary may be reluctant to investigate or prosecute the family due to implicit acceptance of traditional practices in spite of formal illegality, according to the law. Some jurisdictions actually have exemptions for perpetrators of honor killings, 
or they recognize what's called honor defenses, or they may encourage what's called family forgiveness practices. Another harm for traditional practice is female genital mutilation. One of the most famous asylum cases involved, involving female genital mutilation was called Matter of Kasinga. And this recognized a young woman who was a member of a particular tribe that practiced female genital mutilation as forming part of a social group that merited asylum. This harmful practice may be considered a form of torture, and it is practiced in patriarchal societies, but often performed by women within the same family as the child or woman. Asylum has been given to girls and women uh, facing the threat of female genital mutilation, as well as the family members who are opposed to the practice. Caseworkers will determine the risk of her being subjected to this procedure, the ability of the family and the state apparatus to protect her, as well as the prevalence of the practice in her area of origin and among her ethnic group. This analysis is very similar to other forms of uh, harmful practices, including domestic violence and honor killings. So now we're going to look at nexus. We'll start with social group. One of the most significant contributions of gender theory is the impact it had on evaluating the nexus between the persecution and the protection ground of membership of a particular social group in the 1951 Convention on the Status of Refugees. As women are often at risk of serious harm by private actors, including their fathers, husbands, and other family members, there arose a need to assess whether the state was discriminatory in its failure to provide protection due to a bias against women. This context enables men to target women because they know that they will not be investigated or prosecuted by the police or judiciary. The recognition that state actors engaged in structural violence against women due to the denial of access to justice altered how caseworkers analyze protection needs. They reinterpreted the nexus as precisely requiring an examination of whether the state's inaction in response to the serious harm experienced by the women was due to a gender bias within a social context that promoted impunity. And hence the nexus was established to the category of social group. The analysis is first, whether there's a real risk of being persecuted at the hands of a non-state actor for reasons that are related to one of the convention grounds, whether or not the failure of the state to protect the claimant is convention related, or second, whether the risk of being persecuted at the hands of the non-state actor is unrelated to a convention ground, but the inability or the unwillingness of the state to offer protection is for a convention reason. So the UK House of Lords in Islam ex parte Shah held in a case involving women subjected to domestic violence in a country in which the state institutions discriminated against women, that women were members of a gender-defined social group and that although their husbands did not persecute them for this reason, the state failed to protect them because they were women. Hence, persecution is serious harm plus the failure of state protection. Examples of definitions of social group include women subjected to domestic violence, women forced into marriage, women forced into prostitution, 
women who challenge the power structure or just women with no additional description. Women opposed to domestic violence have been recognized as falling within the political opinion protection category. Um, women who belong to other ethnicities, religion, classes, etc., can be subject to intersectional discrimination. Hence, the husband may beat her because she's a woman, but the police may not protect her due to her race. And some jurisdictions specifically recognize sex or gender as a protection ground. And the CEDAW General Recommendation number 32 recommends also including LGBT status. The Hernandez Montiel case recognized gay men with female sexual identities in the country of origin as a particular social group. Nevertheless, there are many national jurisdictions who do not recognize women as a social group, nor do they recognize non-state actors as persecutors. And this delegitimized gender persecution claims because they're often conducted by non-state actors. Now, ongoing challenges women face when seeking asylum include the failure of caseworkers to recognize sexual violence as persecution, the lack of recognition of non-state actor persecution in several jurisdictions, the failure to recognize non-conformance with social, cultural, and religious customs as a ground of persecution, and a failure to recognize women as a particular social group. Furthermore, women are more often required to demonstrate that they cannot seek protection in an internal flight alternative. And caseworkers are very formalistic sometimes in referring to the existence of domestic violence shelters without taking into consideration practical factors that may make relocation unfeasible, such as the lack of family or state support, or a woman's inability to for have uh, economic sufficiency or physical safety, or religious or ethnic or class differences upon the flight alternative. Now let's turn to race, nationality, uh, gender, and sexual violence. The interaction of race, ethnicity, or nationality with gender is very complex. And this is because women's bodies are often viewed as the means by which to promote racial, ethnic, or national identity in direct violation of the Kantian principle that states that all persons should be treated as ends in themselves and not as a means to something else. Women are at risk of sexual violence, forced abortion, forced pregnancy, and sterilization in pursuit of racial and ethnic national aims. The contribution of the jurisprudence of the International Criminal Tribunal, specifically um, the Tribunal on Rwanda, on this issue has been fundamental in addressing the intersection of gender and ethnicity. Other cases, including at the ICTY, um, and the statute of both the tribunals recognize rape and sexual violence as a form of torture, crime against humanity, genocide, and persecution. This is really no noteworthy because there are several national jurisdictions that don't recognize sexual violence as persecution. Moreover, the UN Committee Against Torture, in its general comment number two, includes gender-based violence and abuse within the scope of the Convention Against Torture. And several national guidelines recognize sexual violence as both torture and persecution. Hence, women have the right to be protected against non-refoulement 
or return to their country of origin or other country in which there would be a risk of being subjected to gender-based violence amounting to torture. Now let's look at political opinion and gender. Women and men who oppose their gender roles may be considered to be at risk for their express or implied political opinion. So CEDA General Recommendation 32, paragraph 31, notes, and I quote, women are active agents who play important roles as political leaders, members of government or opposition groups, journalists, human rights defenders, activists, lawyers and judges, among others. They are targeted on account of their political opinions and or activities, including the expression of women's rights. In addition, women will often take up issues relating to the environment, to indigenous land rights, to welfare and education rights, opposition to conservative religious codes, anti-corruption, and social justice causes. This renders them politically targeted, even at the risk of assassination. Sometimes women are uh, denied recognition as falling under the category of political opinion because um, of their alleged low profile of their activity. Here we're talking about people who serve in uh, functions providing food or medicine or housing. But sometimes you'll get a contrary situation because they'll be identified for exclusion for protection because they're deemed to have provided what's called material support to armed actors identified with terrorism or war crimes. And this ironically will include the same categories mentioned before, women who provide healthcare, uh, medicine, food, or messages, now they're lifted for exclusion. It's noteworthy that women are very much at risk of being targeted by actors who impute their political opinion of their relatives to them. So quite often women have absolutely no idea where their husbands are, what their brothers are doing, what their uncles are doing, what their grandfathers are doing. Um, but uh, states and other actors will have other opinions and assume that they have full knowledge and are uh, in compliance with those uh, political activities. So it's um, very important to be specific in the identification of women as um, actors um, we see this are identified in the counterterrorism, counter-extremist strategies are identified as, as having value and this places them in what we call the spotlight. Decision makers have to pursue a gender sensitive interpretation of political opinion that will not expose women to harm. So let's look at the return of women uh, through cessation clauses or the application of the internal flight alternative. Uh, we're seeing more application of uh, this uh, criteria. They seek to uh, return women due to transition to democracy or conclusion of the peace agreement, which will uh, trigger the cessation clause of the 1951 Convention on the Status of Refugees or the identification of an internal flight alternative because they argue that the woman will be subject to protection by the country of origin. Now, Rosine Burke, and I quote, states, gendered rights abuses are pervasive during conflict and post-conflict with the frequent repatriarchalization of societies. So she opines that conflict results in shifts in gender roles. So women who took on male roles during the conflict may be marginalized in the reconstruction of the state in a resubordinated role. 
So there's a need to provide and promote gender justice and empowerment through peace negotiations and constitutional and legislative reforms, as well as state building to ensure gender equality. Um, where states are not engaging in gender equality as part of transitional justice and peace consolidation, decision makers really need to be wary about returning women to a situation of insecurity and vulnerability. Moreover, it's essential to conduct an intersectional protection analysis because, as mentioned before, gender intersects with class, race, poverty, ethnicity, age, and uh, vulnerability has to be flagged for each of the different characteristics. So women and LGBT persons who've been sexually violated, trafficked, or otherwise harmed will often be reluctant to return because of their fear of stigmatization or reprisal in cases where they've cooperated with authorities in identifying traffickers or perpetrators. And women or LBGT who are at risk of being subjected to serious forms of sexual and gender-based violence, including uh, female genital mutilation, would be protected from return due to the principle of non-refoulement, which prohibits return to a risk of irreparable harm, including persecution and torture. Moreover, states in transition or peace consolidation stations are pluralistic contexts in which transnational actors interact with powerful local actors. So you have UN, state, uh, government, political elites, NGOs, faith-based institutions, and traditional justice actors complementing and contradicting each other with respect to addressing accountability and protection issues in practice. So this is very complex, and the international actors need to apply gender rights within a local context. So challenging because this is complicated, um, because when they try to change um, justice, they are perceived often as undermining the traditional value system. They may be seen as infringing on religious beliefs, cultural identity of society, and they may be seen as promoting what's called Western imperialism. So in contrast, local actors may support a traditional approach to law that they will argue um, as important to their custom, but in impact actually marginalize gender rights and reinforce the inequalities supported by social, political, patriarchal, cultural, and religious actors. And this situation is very opaque for external decision makers to understand. It's really important that they um, make decisions in favor of ensuring, um, in practice, an effective, durable solution for refugee women. So in conclusion, women and LBGT refugees seek recognition of their vulnerability, and they deserve protection before, during, and after flight. There have been really great progress in raising awareness of the changes in procedural and substantive approaches for ensuring equality and non-discrimination and dignity in refugee status determination of women in LBGT. Most significantly, it is commonly recognized that all states, developing and developed, should provide gender training to police, border guards, judges, and administrative decision makers to ensure confidence building and awareness within state institutions responsible for processing refugee cases.